Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our 2023 Virtual HOA Condo Academy number six for Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. Our HOA Condo Academy topic today is going to be everything you need to know about Arizona HOA and condo law in 60 minutes. So if we're going to meet that 60 minutes mark, I've got to get going right away. So good morning and welcome to class number six of the 2023 Virtual HOA Condo Academy. We teach these classes in partnership with the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe. My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the managing partner and senior attorney for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've enjoyed working with and representing HOAs and condominiums for the past 26 years. My firm currently represents over 1,000 planned communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. I also currently serve on my HOA board, and I have for many years. Before we dive into the materials for today, I always like to know who's in my audience. So welcome to all of you. Thank you for coming today. I have a poll that I'm going to be launching to find out, or two polls at the same time, to find out which city your HOA or condo is located in, and then also let us know your current role. So if you're joining us on Facebook Live, what I would ask is that you um, type in which city you reside and then also what your current role is for your association. If you're joining us on Zoom, um, you'll have the poll right on your screen. Okay, while we're waiting for those poll results to come in, let's talk a little bit about this year's legislative session and then give you just a quick overview of of what happened um, in the legislative session. Then we're gonna be diving right into what are the most important things that you need to know about Arizona HOA and condominium law. And then we're going to have a Q&A at the end of the class where I ask or answer every question that's been asked either before the presentation or during the presentation. We won't sign off until we answer every single question. Please limit it to one question per person just because we have a lot of people joining us here today, it looks like. And we have over 109 people on Zoom and several more joining us on Facebook Live too. So that's awesome. We have such a good turnout today. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the legislature this year. It's actually really surprising that they're still in session. Um, They started their session in January of 2023. They're currently on break until July 31st, 2023. I've been following the legislature for, gosh, since 1995 and regarding HOA and condominium issues. And I've never seen breaks like this before in the legislature. And I don't know, we're we're all kind of hypothecating about what's going on here. Some people are saying it has to do with the budget. Some people saying it's a political thing where the parties aren't getting along. Regardless, there is an impact for the associations. Right now, we have five bills that have been signed into law by the governor of Arizona. And these laws will not go into effect until 91 days after the session ends. And so the session hasn't ended yet. We're just kind of like on a break. So we don't know the actual effective date of these five bills. We're going to be sharing with you just a brief summary that we've done of all of these bills. And once the legislative session is over for the year, we will be also sharing with you a cheat sheet on the bills that pass in 2023. 
Okay. So as I said, there were five bills that have been passed into law. We don't know when they're going to become effective, meaning when they're going to, everybody's going to have to comply with them. It won't be likely until this fall based upon how things are going right now. Okay. So the first bill has to do with condominiums only, and it talks about insurance. And it basically says that the assurance, it just kind of further defines what type of insurance that you have to have in a condominium. It says that after the first conveyance of a unit to a person, so after the first unit is sold, the association to a person other than the developer, the association has to maintain to the extent reasonably possible or available property insurance on the common elements. And here's where the law changed. They added this language and if required by the condominium documents, the units, insuring against all risks of direct physical loss and insured against or as determined by the board of directors against fire and extended coverage perils. The amount of the insurance after application of any deductible shall be not less than 80% of the actual cash value of the insured property at the time the insurance is purchased. It looks like um, it also carries on to do just some like technical wording changes. And then it goes on to talk a little bit about the insurance policies in this section are going to provide for, they have to provide for certain things. And there is some additional language here that will apply definitely to the association, such as as an insured person under the association's policy with respect to the unit owner's interest in the common elements unit owner's individual unit or membership in the association, each unit owner has a right to report a loss under the association's property insurance policy. And each owner shall additionally report the loss to the association. The implication on this is that some associations wanted to be, the board wanted to be in control of when the um, insurance claim was made and if the insurance company, if the insurance claim was made. Um, under this new law, owners are going to be able to directly report a loss to the insurance company. So the association's board will no longer be able to manage the claims. And so that's a pretty significant development and will definitely impact insurance premiums because there'll be no barrier. Anyone will be able to make a claim. You know, sometimes we would, associations would self-insure on certain things if it was less than deductible, et cetera. The other part of this is that prior to reporting a loss under the association's master insurance policy, a unit owner shall report the loss to the association and give the association 10 business days to provide the unit owner with a written decision whether the association will be reporting a claim to the master policy. If the association decides not to report a claim under the master policy, the association shall provide the reason for the decision in the written decision. And so, I mean, I think the when we receive these notices after this law goes into effect, and a condo board receives these type of notices asking to make a claim on the association's insurance, we have 10 days, business days to respond. And I think that would be a really good point to get your attorney involved for your association so that you word the response in a way um, that is defensible if there is litigation on this. Okay, so just some clarifying things on the insurance Another thing is that the association has to inform each unit owner annually in writing of both of these things. The unit owner's responsibility for the association's insurance deductibles for all property and liability coverage and the amount of each deductible. And so will be real important that every year, probably a good time to do this would be either January 1st or at the time of your annual meeting and then have a paper trail showing that you're doing this. That's kind of the big new bill that was just signed by the governor recently. We've talked extensively about some of the other bills. I'm not going to go into those in detail today because we don't have enough time. One of them is going to be on public roadways in a planned community. 
an important development that the board is going to have to, um, if the streets are dedicated to the public, the board is going to have to take action before June 30th, 2025, if they want to continue to regulate on-street parking in those streets that are dedicated to the city. There's some additional information, another bill on political activity, and um, this applies to planned communities and to condominiums, and we've seen a lot of political activity bills. And then we also saw the Betsy Ross flag bill that allows the Betsy Ross flag to be flown in planned communities and condominiums. Then the other thing is, if a board member is removed, if there's a petition to remove a board member in either a planned community or a condominium, this is the fifth law. If the board has to, to call notice and hold a special meeting for the vote to remove the director from office within 30 days after receiving the petition, or the members of the board are deemed removed from office effective midnight of the 31st day. So like I said, we have a great um, overview for you on our, our legislative update, and that is updated every week on the homepage of our website. So make sure you're checking that out. But kind of the bills to be watching this year are if you're a condominium, there are some new insurance requirements that you need to be aware of. If you are a planned community and your streets are dedicated to the public and you want to continue um, regulating on street parking, you are going to be required to take some action before June 30th, 2025. And you can read the details about that in the public roadways bill. The political activity bill just um, further clarifies um, who can and cannot come into um, the condominium or the planned community if you're a gated community to solicit or to um, pass initiatives. They have to be accompanied by a unit owner in order to do that. So like a third party polling company or a third party political type person who's trying to get signatures, they're going to have to be accompanied by somebody who is a unit owner in order to come into your gated community. We talked about in planned communities and condominiums, if there's a removal petition, um, it's the fourth bill. And if the board doesn't take action to call, notice, and conduct a removal meeting within 30 days of receiving that removal petition, the entire board is removed on the 31st day. And then last but not least, kind of the easiest one, the Betsy Ross flag. Owners will be allowed to fly the Betsy Ross flag if you live in a condominium planned community. Kind of a big year this year with these five bills. They're pretty diverse. They reapply to both condos and planned communities. One applies just to condos and one applies just to planned communities. So stay tuned. Um, when the legislature um, comes back from their break, we'll be continuing to see what is going on, what they're going to do. Maybe they'll just come back and finish out the session quickly and the legislative session will be over and then we'll count 91 days from that date to the point where these all these five new bills will be going into effect as law. Okay, let's go back to our poll results. We, at the beginning of this class today, we asked you, which city do you reside in? And today we have a really great representation. So we have 1% are here from Chandler, 3% from Glendale, 3% from Goodyear, 8% from Mesa, 7% from Peoria, 15% from Phoenix, 56%, that is a new high from Scottsdale, 1% uh, from Surprise, and 5% from Tempe. So thank you, everybody, for being here from all over the valley. Next, the question was, what is your current role with the association? We have 62% who are board members with us here today, 11% are managers, and 22% are interested homeowners. So really great representation today all the different Valley cities, and then also board members, interested homeowners and managers. So welcome. Okay, let's go into the meat of our class today. So we're going to be talking about 
What is everything that you really need to know about Arizona law that affects condominiums and plant communities? And so kind of the first place that I want to start is you need to know where you can find the laws in Arizona that pertain to condos and plant communities. So we're going to be sharing a link with you um, to the Arizona revised statutes. And these are online and they can be found at www.azleg.gov. And once you get into that particular website, then you can go to either Title 10 or Title 33. And I'll kind of give you a little bit more information on that. So we're going to share with you first Title 10. Title 10 are the statutes that deal with nonprofit corporations. Now, 99.99% of associations in Arizona that are planned communities or condos are are registered as a nonprofit corporation with the Corporation Commission. Um, why? Because we want to limit liability of the members and put a corporate shield around the corporation so that no individual members of the association, whether they're board members or owners, have personal liability. So we, we don't very often use the Nonprofit Corporation Act. And again, this is in Title 10, Chapter 24. When we do use it, um, it's what we call a gap filler. And that is typically what happens when the documents don't tell us something and we need to fill the gap with the law. For example, let's say that your bylaws of your association don't state what a quorum is to have your annual meeting. In that case, then we would know to go to the Nonprofit Corporation Act and the default quorum is 10%. And so, again, we don't use the Nonprofit Corporation Act very often, but it does apply to associations. And we do look at it from time to time to fill in gaps. There are times, though, I want to mention this, that the Condominium Act and the Plant Communities Act appear to conflict with or to conflict with the Nonprofit Corporation Act. And in that case, um, Arizona case law says that we need to go with the more specific statute, which would be the Condominium Act and the Planning Communities Act, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And a really good example of this would be um, boards making decisions outside of a board meeting and relying on the provisions in the Nonprofit Corporation Act to make a decision outside of a board meeting by unanimous written consent. Now, I totally 100% agree that the Nonprofit Corporation Act says that um, a nonprofit corporation can make decisions outside of a board meeting as long as they have unanimous written consent. However, the Condominium Act and the Planned Communities Act have a more specific statute called the Open Meeting Law. And it says that all decisions of the board must be made when a quorum of the board is present discussing association business. These decisions must be made in a properly noticed open board meeting. And so this is just a really good example of something that keeps me in business because a question often arises where you need to bring in your attorney to say, can we make decisions outside of a board meeting relying on the Nonprofit Corporation Act saying that if we get unanimous written consent, we can make that decision. And my opinion and the opinion of at least two administrative law judges in Arizona that have looked at this issue is that, no, you cannot rely on the Nonprofit Corporation Act to do this. Instead, you need to look to the Planned Communities Act and the Condominium Act and those particular laws say that any decision of the board where there's a form of the board present discuss discussing association business need to be done in the open board meeting. Um, and so you can't, you know, go around, you know, the open meeting law and try to make decisions by unanimous written consent. 
In a few minutes, we're going to talk about um, a couple exceptions to that when we talk about open meeting law. Um, but I want to move right into you know where you can find the Condominium Act and the Planning Communities Act if you actually want to see it. So we're going to be sharing that link with you here today and so that you can see it on the screen. Okay, so Title 33 is where you find property laws in Arizona. Chapter 9 is condominiums and Chapter 16 is planned communities. And so if you click on the links that we give you, you'll see the exact language of the Nonprofit Corporation Act, which is Title 10, Chapter 24, the Condominium Act, which is Title 33, Chapter 9, and the Planned Communities Act, which is Title 33, Chapter 16. So that's where you actually go see the exact language of the statute. So I thought it was important that we start out with that in this seminar today, so that if you ever want to look up something and you want to see the exact language of the statute, this is where you go. Come back to this class and look at these links because that will give you the information to go look at the exact language of the statute. Okay, now let's get into the nitty gritty of what exactly are the laws that as an attorney practicing in the area of representing associations, that I think condominium boards and planned community boards and condominium owners and planned community owners and managers who work with both, you know, what are the most important laws that you need to have on your radar and that you need to have a good working knowledge of? So the very first one is the Arizona Open Meeting Law. Basically, um, we have a cheat sheet on this topic which we will be sharing with you in a few minutes here. We also have a cheat sheet on virtual meetings, um, which we'll talk about here in a minute as well. Okay, so what's the nitty gritty on the Arizona Open Meeting Law? First things first, the Arizona Open Meeting Law is different than the open meeting law that applies to school boards and city council meetings. We have our own very special law in Arizona. And for planned communities, it's 33-1804. For condominiums, it's... ARS 33-1248. And if you go to our cheat sheet, all of these sections are listed, you know, specifically in the cheat sheet. Okay, so what does the open meeting law in Arizona mean for condominiums and planned communities? All meetings of an association, board of directors, and regularly scheduled committee meetings are required to be open to all association members or their representatives, and they must be held in the state of Arizona. So let's just back this up a little bit. Anytime that you have a forum of the board discussing association business, it needs to be an open board meeting, okay? Anytime you have a regularly scheduled committee meeting of a committee of your association, it needs to be an open meeting. What's a regularly scheduled committee meeting? Our architectural committee meets the first Friday of every month at 9 a.m. Open meetings can apply to you. If your architectural committee meets you regularly, the Open Meeting Act is not going to apply to you. Okay, so one thing, a little caveat to the Open Meeting Law that I think is important for us to talk about is that the open board meeting is open to the members, of course, because they are members of the corporation. It's also open to members' representatives who they may designate in writing to attend on their behalf. So let's give an example. So if, let's say, an owner is unable to come to a board meeting or doesn't want to come. They could have their tenant come as their designated representative if they put in writing that I, Beth Mulcahy, designate Johnny Appleseed to be my designated representative to attend the board meeting for ABC Association. And if Johnny Appleseed brings that letter to the board meeting, Johnny Appleseed is allowed to attend, listen, and participate just like any other owner would be at a regular board meeting. 
one thing that you I want to bring up because I do see this happen, you know, just in the trenches, I can tell you that sometimes the owner and their designated representative come to the meeting and they both want to talk. Well, no, you have to designate one person. So for example, let's say that an owner brings their attorney. The attorney would likely be the person that would be talking at the meeting if they want to contribute in some way during the meeting. Another thing that is important to recognize is that association boards are required to allow members or their designated agents or representatives to talk during specific times during the meeting. And those specific times would be before the board takes formal action on something. So if your board is, there are different votes that are taken throughout a board meeting. Um, anytime that there is a motion to second and the board is going to vote on something, during the discussion period before the board votes on it, if an owner wants to contribute something, the board has to let the owner contribute. The board can put time limitations on it, but the board can't shut them down and say, no, you can't talk before the board takes formal action on something. And that's the only exception. That's the only time that they're allowed to talk. Um, a lot of boards, just from a practical standpoint, have a homeowner forum at the beginning of the board meeting for 10 minutes or so and give each person 30 seconds, one minute, two minute to um, state anything that they want to talk about just as a courtesy. But the only requirement is before the board takes formal action, if an owner pipes up and wants to say something, um, the board has to allow that person to talk within a time period. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about executive sessions. What is an executive session? That is when it's just the board, no other owners or members of the community or designated agents or representatives are at this meeting. It's common that maybe the manager will be there and possibly an employee of the association if we're discussing an employment issue or possibly the association's attorney. But executive session is a time where the board can confidentially talk about things and there's only five certain areas that they can talk about things and they can exclude the membership from their discussions of these five areas. So what are the five areas that the board can go into executive session for? And again, this is an option. It's not mandatory. The board makes the decision. If the board wants to go into executive session, they have the right to do that. And they just there's a specific thing that they have to do under the law. They have to state which section of the open meeting law executive session exceptions that they're going to be going into executive session to discuss prior to going into executive session. So that could be on the notice of the meeting, or it could be we just stated verbally at the meeting if you're going into executive session after the regular board meeting. One thing I forgot about the open meeting law that I just want to mention is that we don't want to forget that we have to give 48 hours notice to the membership of any board meeting or executive session. Even though the, the members can't attend the executive session, we still have to give them notice of the executive session and just say it's executive session. And at that time, I would indicate which section of the open meeting law, executive session exceptions, the board is going to be going into discuss during executive session. Okay, so let's talk about those executive session topics that you can go into executive session for. There's five. Um, anytime you're getting legal advice for the attorney for the board or the association, you can go into executive session to discuss that legal advice. Whether the attorney is there or not, you could be relaying a conversation that board member or manager had with an attorney or looking at an email opinion or an opinion letter um, and then discussing that as a board. So number one, anytime you get legal advice from an attorney for the board or the association, you can go into executive session. 
Number two, anytime you're talking about pending or contemplated litigation, you can go into executive session. So if you're thinking about suing an owner or a third party, or you actually are already involved in a lawsuit, that's the second reason you can go into executive session. The next three areas that you can go into executive session, we just don't see that often, but I want to mention them so you're aware of it. So the third thing you can go into executive session for would be anytime you're discussing personal health or financial information about a member of the association, an employee of the association, or an independent contractor. So how often do we talk about personal health or financial information about an owner or one of our employees or an independent contractor? Not that often, but it's notable and I wanted to mention it. The fourth area you can go into executive session, I see a little bit more of, and this is where there's problems with a with the job performance of, or how much we're paying, the compensation of, or health records or complaints against an employee of the association or an independent contractor for the association. So I think everybody who serves on a board knows that from time to time, there are issues with vendors, issues with employees, and you can go into executive session to discuss job performance, how much you're paying them, health records, or any complaints that we may have against those employees or independent contractors. And then last but not least, the fifth topic you can go into executive session for is you can discuss an owner's appeal of any violations cited or any fines or penalties levied by the association during executive session. So the board can say, we're going to talk about the appeal. This Johnny Appleseed is appealing the fine that we sent him regarding not putting his trash cans away like he was supposed to. Um, The only exception to that is if the owner, Johnny Appleseed, wants it in the open session, which trust me, they never do, but occasionally we see it, then we have to shift it over to the open session. If the owner specifically says, no, I want to discuss my violation or my penalty in the open session, then you have to move it out to the open session. And so that, that's just basically the 411 on executive sessions. If you want to do more of a deep dive, you can look at the detailed cheat sheet that we have on this topic. You know, what are some things to avoid during executive session? Try not to get off course and go switch over and talk about non-executive session topics. That's a no-no. Also, any hiring or firing of vendors needs to be done in the open session. Even though you can talk about their job performance and complaints, you still need to hire and fire the contractor during the, the vendor during the open session. In addition, state law requires that the agenda given to every member at the time of the meeting. So you could either, there's a number of ways you can comply with this. You can, when you do the notice of the meeting, you can give the owners the agenda when you send out that notice of the meeting 48 hours in advance of the meeting. You can um, hand it to the members in person if you're having an in-person meeting when they walk into the meeting. If you're having a Zoom meeting or a virtual meeting, you can post it on the screen at the beginning of the meeting so that everybody can see the agenda. It's important that you know that the law does require that we give them the agenda at some point prior to the meeting starting. Also, don't forget all meetings need to be held in Arizona. That is a requirement under the law. So we couldn't plan a special meeting in San Diego or the July board meeting without also having a spot in Arizona where if members wanted to attend in person, they could. Let's talk about emergency meetings. Um, And I know this topic, we're kind of spending a lot of time on this, but this is probably the most important topic for board members to know about the open meeting law. And it seems to be the, the topic that I get the most questions on. How do we handle emergency meetings? 
an emergency is something that we have to take action on it within 48 hours. We can't wait 48 hours to notice a meeting and then discuss it. It's urgent. It's something that needs to have immediate action taken. Good example would be there's a fire in the association and we need to make an insurance claim right away. Or there's a sensitive deadline in litigation that we're involved in. The, the deadline expires before the 48 hours. So let's talk a little bit about how emergency meetings are handled. First, it has to be a true emergency, number one. Second, if you have an emergency meeting, you need to take minutes of the meeting. And um, then at the next meeting, regular board meeting, after the emergency meeting, you need to read into the record the minutes from the emergency meeting so that there's a paper trail in the regular meeting minutes afterwards, what happened, why you had an emergency, and what was decided. You can make do make decisions when it's a true emergency situation by email, and you don't need unanimous written consent. You just need a majority of the board. So there could be something that comes up in the summer when a lot of your board members may be somewhere cooler and there's a serious issue, maybe something, the pool pump breaks or something, and we need to make a quick decision. You might be able to make a decision very quickly via email so that we can get that pool back up and running again. What if we're, a big question that I get from clients is what about informal board meetings? What if we don't make any decisions? You know, and we're just having like a, a discussion board meeting where we're just informal if a majority of a quorum is present at that meeting, even if you're not voting on anything, even if you're not making any decisions, if you're discussing association business, you have to notice it and make it an open board meeting. The workaround on that, the loophole would be have less than a majority or a quorum, less than you know the quorum discussing business, then you don't have to make it an open board meeting. Let's talk a little bit about virtual board meetings. It's something that we've been seeing quite a bit since the pandemic. In our experience, 90% of associations now have converted to doing all of their meetings virtually. Um, we have a great cheat sheet on tips for conducting virtual meetings, which I encourage you to take a look at. You know, there are pros and cons to virtual meetings versus in-person meetings. You just have to decide what is best for you and your association. Um, and some associations do a hybrid. Some associations do only in person. Some do only virtual. There really is no right answer after the pandemic. What I can tell you, though, as an attorney that works with associations, I no longer go to board meetings in person because the board's prefer to have me attend via Zoom. And it's less expensive for the boards because they don't have to pay for my travel time. And the boards, they like it too, because I have access to my computer and I can look up things quickly. If a new topic comes up, I have all my whole file virtually right in front of me. And so that is really very commonplace now that we're, we are all appearing, the attorneys for associations are all appearing either by Zoom, another virtual platform, or by telephone. Okay, so we spend a lot of time on open board meetings, but it's really important that you understand that subject because that is probably the biggest violation that I see of Arizona law, not fully understanding how open board meetings operate, when to go into executive session, how to use emergency meetings, the requirement to have an agenda. All of these things are really important aspects of the open meeting law. Okay, let's talk about our next topic, which is solar energy devices. And we have a cheat sheet on this topic. If you want to do a deep dive on it and learn more about how associations handle 
requests for solar panels. One thing that we see pretty frequently is solar companies come into a neighborhood and they do a marketing blitz where they send out a lot of flyers. Maybe they're even knocking door to door and they're trying to encourage owners to adopt solar, whether it's to heat their pool or to cool their house. And it's very important that associations know what the law is regarding solar energy devices if an owner wants to put one on their property. So Arizona law strictly prohibits planned communities from prohibiting the installation or use of a solar energy device. However, planned communities can adopt rules regarding the placement of those devices so long as those rules don't effectively prohibit installation of the devices, impair the device's ability to function, or adversely affect the cost of the device. There's a reported decision in the appellate court in Arizona called the Garden Lakes case that talks extensively about the statute. There's two solar energy statutes. And, you know, you may want to take a deep dive if you're having this issue in your community. A couple pointers from being in the trenches handling architectural requests on solar energy devices. Okay, number one, owners still have to submit an architectural form for solar energy devices. This law doesn't you know, give them a hall pass to not submit an architectural application. So make sure that if you're seeing a big solar blitz come into your community, and you'll know because you're a board member maybe living there, that you are immediately pumping out information to your community that if you're thinking about installing a solar energy device, you must follow the architectural guidelines and you must follow the architectural review procedures and submit an application prior to installing anything. So number one, they have to submit an application. Number two, when they do end up submitting the application, it's very difficult to disapprove these applications because we can't effectively prohibit the installation of the solar device. The way that planned communities are set up in Arizona, they're usually the only spot that you can put these solar panels is on the roof. So there's really likely no other place that they can put them. And, you know, so you have to be really careful as an association, as you're reviewing these applications, if you, you know, there's some things that you can do, like you can require that the apparatus that's attached to the house that supports the solar panels on the roof, you can request that that is screened or painted. So it looks nicer, but you can't prohibit them from having it on their roof if that's the only place that they can have it to get, you know, an adequate number of panels to meet the needs, the solar needs that they have. I can tell you from experience that courts are look favorably upon solar energy devices. So if you are going to deny a request for an owner to have a solar energy device, you definitely want to get your legal counsel involved, get their opinion, and you may want to get a second opinion from a solar company to make sure that you're on solid ground if you're going to deny somebody's request. Okay, let's talk a little bit about um, the next law that I think is important for you to be aware of. If you are a planned community or a condominium, you are required to have an annual financial audit, review, or compilation of the association's finances each year. And this is in ARS 33-1810, or if you're a condo, 33-1243. The annual audit review or compilation must be completed no later than six months after the end of the fiscal year, and it has to be made available if an owner wants to see it within 30 days of its completion. So whatever the completion date is, within 30 days afterwards, if an owner wants to see it, we have to provide it. This is kind of a tricky law because... 
in theory, it appears that every association has to have an audit reviewer compilation every year, but it doesn't say that it has to be done by a CPA um, or anybody that has any special qualifications. The only time that you have to have an audit done by a CPA is if it's in your bylaws where it requires that your association have the audit done by a CPA. Otherwise, the association can hire a bookkeeper, an accountant, have the books reviewed by a committee appointed by the board of directors. Maybe the treasurer of the association can do an audit reviewer compilation or maybe even the management company. Now, just a word of caution here. The reason why this law was passed, of course, was to protect from fraud in associations and to make sure that there is an adequate review of the association's finances. The problem is there just isn't enough teeth in the law saying that we have to have it done by a CPA and or somebody independent. And so even though it appears that, oh, this is a good thing, and it is to a certain degree, it's not specific enough that an independent third party with experience in reviewing these things is you know, required to, to do the audit review or compilation. And so it is a little bit problematic in that it has no teeth. But regardless, just make sure that you are aware that you are required to have this every year. If it is in your bylaws, you have to have a CPA do it. You have to do that. If you don't have the the requirement in your documents, its best practices would be to use a CPA to do this every year. If your association can financially afford it or bring in a third party who's independent with experience to help you with this process. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the next important aspect of Arizona law that you need to be aware of, and this is board removal. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time going into the entire process, but we, on our cheat sheet, we have a blog and we also have a cheat sheet on on this topic. It's on the top 10 cheat sheet, or we have a blog on the board removal process, which we're going to be sharing with you. Um, The most important things to remember on the removal of the board of directors is that no matter what your documents state, so it doesn't matter what your CCNRs or your bylaws state about removing a director from office, this state law controls. And basically what the state law says is first that you cannot remove a director appointed by the developer. So this doesn't apply to developer control time. This applies to post-developer, you know, after the developer's gone, the board members that are elected by the membership. And basically, there's an entire procedure that's outlined under the law that associations must follow or owners must follow if they want to remove one or more of the board members. And so basically, um, you can do a deep dive by looking at our cheat sheet um, or our blog on this, but there has to be a petition that's submitted to the board. And there's a requisite number of signatures on the petition that are needed. They have to be in good standing. And based upon the size of your association, it's either 25% of the members or 10% of the members, depending on how large your association is. And those members need to sign calling for the removal of the director or directors. Um, The board has to have a special meeting after receiving and verifying the signatures on the petition within 30 days of receiving the petition. And earlier in the presentation, I talked about um, the fact that there's a new law that we don't know when it's going to go into effect, probably this later this fall, that says if the board doesn't have this meeting within 30 days, the entire board is out automatically removed. So this law is really important because if you if a removal petition is submitted, 
immediate action needs to be taken. And if they don't have the signatures, you need to write back and tell them, hey, you don't have the requisite signatures to move forward. If they do have the requisite signatures to move forward, we need to kick it in high gear and start with noticing the meeting. We need to get the notice out, the ballot, and possibly even have um, some sort of a letter explaining the, the board's position on this matter. At the actual special meeting, um, which again has to take place within 30 days of getting the petition, there's a special quorum of 20% of the membership. And then at the actual meeting of the membership on this topic to remove the director or directors, we have to have a majority vote of the members eligible to vote, voting on the matter in order to have the director or directors removed from office. So I guess I can give you some just some practice pointers from um, being in the trenches on this law. Number one, if your board is hearing that there is a removal petition circulating in your community, I would take the measure really seriously and I would start pumping out information to your homeowners about any problems that there may be in the community right now. Maybe have a town hall, talk through the issues. Because going through this removal process is expensive. It's going to cost your association at least $5,000 in legal fees to help you through the process. I have seen one removal meeting that actually cost eighty grand because there was so much litigation before and after it. So I don't want you to get in that situation. So how do you avoid a removal meeting? Talk to your owners. Get out there and have a town hall. Pump information out about anything that people are upset about. Offer to talk to people that are upset get ahead of the removal petition before people start signing it. If it's too late and the removal petition is already been submitted, you still should think about doing a town hall before the vote and air grievances, talk things through as a community, because these type of removal petitions, not only do they cost money, but they also affect property values because word gets out that, hey, there's trouble or at ABC Association, you know, they've got this removal going and then the realtors start talking and then people don't want to buy a home in here because they think that things are you know not being well run or whatever. So try to get ahead of it and open lines of communication to find out what's going on. Why are this many people upset and want the board or board members removed? Also, you got to act on it. When you get the removal petition, you got to like as quickly as possible, get it to the attorney, start verifying the names, start planning where you're going to have the meeting, get the ballot together because 30 days is not a lot of time to plan and send the notice out and get all the owner owners to be able to you know respond and, and participate. And last but not least, I will just give you this final pointer is that most of the time board members are not removed. From office at one of these meetings. Why? Because most people don't even want to be on the board, right? They just want to make sure that whoever's in charge is doing a good job and they don't want your job. So if you're responsible and you communicate well and you talk about the issues in the community, it's likely that you're not going to be removed. Don't forget that you have to keep the removal documents after a removal meeting, meaning like the notice and the bylaw and the ballots for one year after the removal meeting. And bonus, if there's an attempt to remove you from office as a board member and they fail, they cannot try again during that term of the director. So if they blow it the first time, they don't get the votes, they have to let you finish your term and then they can try again after your term is up. 
Okay. If a director is removed from office, there's also a procedure on how you replace the director. um, And that's described in more detail on our cheat sheet. Okay, let's talk about our next topic, which is display of flags. I have been practicing as an attorney in Arizona representing associations since 1996. And I've seen this law evolve over time. I've seen it start from ground zero at that point. And so basically, if you live in a planned community or a condominium, the HOA or condo cannot prohibit the display of these flags. So you can fly these flags in your association. So the American flag or the replica of a flag of uniformed services of the United States. So like Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard. However, these flags must be displayed in a manner consistent with the federal flag code, meaning that they have to have illumination at night, they can't be tattered, etc. So first flag would be American flag or armed services flag. Second flag would be POW MIA flags are allowed to be flown. Arizona State Flag, the Arizona Indian Nations Flag, the Gadsden Flag, the First Responder Flag, and a Blue Star Service Flag or a Gold Star Service Flag. Um, and you can look up what those are on the internet if you're not sure. Um, there's plenty of pictures that can show you. Um, there are some special laws on how many flags you can fly. So an HOA can limit the owner to no more than two flags at once and can limit the height of the flagpole to not more than the height of the rooftop of the owner's home. And so in the condominium, really the only places you can fly it would be like have a little pole sticking off of your limited common elements or in your window. In an HOA, you can have a flagpole on your property with no more than two flags at once. Um, And the flagpole cannot be higher than the height of the rooftop of the owner's home. And don't forget also, we've got this new law, the Betsy Ross flag. So whenever the legislature ends their legislative session, this will be added to the flag that can be flown in Arizona 91 days after the legislative session formally ends. Okay, we have a blog on flags in HOAs that we'll be sharing with you. And then also on the Betsy Ross flag, the actual statute. Okay, let's talk about another important Arizona law, for sale signs. This applies to condominiums and planned communities. Owners are allowed to place for sale or for sale signs or and a sign rider on that owner's property. So if they put the for sale sign on their property, they're allowed to do this. Um, It can also have one of those little riders that's attached to it, like a pool or a great view or whatever. And so just be aware that for sale and for lease signs are allowable in a condo. The only place you're going to go and put it would be in your window in a planned community. You can put it anywhere on your property. Okay, let's talk a little bit about political and community activities. Um, We've seen a bunch of bills in Arizona over the past few years that have talked about political signs and political activities in your community. And so let's just briefly talk about this. Number one, political signs can be placed on an owner's property, and this applies to condominiums and planned communities. And a condo, again, it's probably going to be limited to window. Planned community, it's going to be on that owner's lot. So we're going to start to see, you know, we're going to have another presidential election um, in 2024. We're, we're definitely going to start to see those political signs again. Also, initiatives, maybe state or local initiatives propositions, those type of signs and supportive or against, those are allowable. HOA or condo initiatives, board removals, voting on special assessments. 
voting to amend CCNRs. You can have political signs on your property for those different topics. There are time limitations on how long you can have those different types of signs up. And I would encourage you to take a look at our website for more information on how long these signs can be placed. We've got a great legislative update from 2022 that you, you may want to take a look at. There was also a peaceful assembly bill that was a sign that was um, passed, I believe, last year, which allows owners, group of owners to assemble and discuss matters related to the association, including any association issues or any other issues. The association can invite one guest, one political candidate, or one non-owner guest to speak at an assembly of owners. So again, peaceful assembly is allowed and an association can't prohibit that. Interesting part of this is that if the owner wants to notify the membership of this peaceful assembly, the board has to post it in the same way that they would post a board meeting in the community. So the board can be forced to notice this peaceful assembly under Arizona law. So just interesting how over the years, different things come up. We saw a lot of green bills earlier in my career and the open meeting law and fine tuning to different laws. Now we're seeing all these political bills and new green law, green bills as well have, have gone through. And that's a great lead into the next one, which is um, last year, there was a law passed regarding artificial turf. And basically this applies only to planned communities and says that an association cannot prohibit an owner from installing artificial turf on the property. If you want to do a deep dive on this, you certainly can. Um, we have a great legislative update, which we're going to be sharing with you, which goes through the intricacies of the board adopting artificial turf rules and um, what sort of restrictions we can place on the artificial turf to make sure that it's being maintained and that it's a high quality the owners still have to get approval, architectural approval, before they would ever be allowed to do this. But basically, we can't ban it. We can't prohibit it. And let's talk a little bit about our next, next topic, which is transfer fees and disclosure fees. I just want you to be aware that under Arizona law, you can charge a transfer fee, or sometimes it's referred to as a capital contribution fee to buyers. But there's a very specific procedure under Arizona law as to how you can um, set it up so it's valid for you to charge it. And we have a great cheat sheet on this topic. Basically, you need to have specific language in your CCNRs in order to charge that transfer fee or capital improvement fee to buyers when they buy in your association. Um, also, in the same cheat sheet, we talk about disclosure fees. And this is a fee that is charged by the association or the management company to disclose information about the association and um, that there's a cap on how much you can charge for this. So how it works is the title company will notify the association or the management company that there is a buyer in escrow for a lot or unit in a planned community or condo. And the association fills out the disclosure statement with information about the association and then we can charge a fee for filling out that disclosure statement. And if you want more information about how transfer fees are set up and what disclosure fees are and what a disclosure package is and disclosure information that needs to be provided to a buyer, go to this cheat sheet. It'll give you a deep dive on it. Okay, next, we're going to talk a little bit about rental properties, another very hot topic in Arizona. We have a full cheat sheet on how to effectively work with rental properties. I just want to mention one important Point about rental properties. And that is that when we have a renter, and this could be a long-term renter or a short-term renter, 
there's only a very small number of things that we can demand that the owner landlord provide to us. And so we can ask the owner landlord for three categories of information. Fourth category, if you're 55 and over community, we can ask for the name and contact information for any adults occupying the unit. So what adults are living in the unit? We can ask for how long the lease is, including the beginning and the ending dates of the tenancy. We can ask for third, a description of the license plate numbers of the tenant's vehicles. So a description of the vehicle and their license plate numbers for the tenant. If it's a 55 and over community, we can ask for a government issued identification with a photograph of the tenant that meets to show that the tenant meets the minimum age requirements of the 55 and over community. There is a small fee that we can charge for um, registering rentals, and that is going to be $25. If the owner never registers their rental, we can charge a $15 late fee, but that is the only charge that we can charge. If you want a deep dive on dealing with rental properties, we, like I said, we have a great cheat sheet that will give you some more information. If you're having problems with a rental property in your community, you know, make sure that you're reaching out to our firm. We are excellent at managing rental property problems. And we just go right to the owner landlord. We let the owner landlord know how much it's going to cost to defend all these problems that the landlord or that the owner, excuse me, that the tenant is creating. And we have a very specific strategy that we use and it works. So if you've got a bad tenant, make sure that you know, keep that in your back pocket, that it would be smart to reach out to our firm to help you navigate that, that situation. Okay, next topic, annual meetings. We have a great cheat sheet on annual meetings in Arizona that we're going to be sharing with you. Important thing to remember in Arizona, you have to have an annual meeting once a year. That is a requirement under the law in Arizona and the Condominium Act and the Planned Communities Act. If you can't get a quorum, reach out to your lawyer, your trusted advisors to find out what you should do. Should you make another attempt? Possibly. If you don't think that you can get a quorum, then you can't do it. You made one attempt. Um, you may want to make a second attempt as a good faith effort, or you may just want to wait until next year. If you can't get a quorum, the board that's in place stays on another year. And again, we have a great cheat sheet on how to conduct successful annual meetings. And I would encourage you to take a look at that if you're interested in that topic. The last few topics that we're going to be talking about are going to be fines and penalties. Under Arizona law in both planned communities and condos, you have a right to fine owners for violations of the CCNRs, the bylaws, and the rules. You have to give notice of the violation and an opportunity to be heard before you levy the fine against the owner. So just make sure we have a cheat sheet on this topic on our website, mulcahylawfirm.com, if you want to do more of a deep dive on this. But you do have that right to fine. It doesn't have to be in your documents. Um, it's best practices to have a fine policy. But if you don't, it doesn't mean that you cannot fine. You still can fine using the requirements of the law. Okay, next topic. What do you do if your owner wants to see books and records of the association? Under Arizona law, owners are allowed to see almost all books and records of the association with very few exceptions that they can't see. You have 10 business days to get the records to the owner after they request it. I highly recommend that you take a peek at our cheat sheet, our top 10 cheat sheet. 
which talks about procedure and how to make a request. And we can charge 15 cents per page for every page that we make for the owner pursuant to the request that we provide to them. Or they can just come in and look at the documents for free. Um, there are certain things they can't have, like advice from the attorney, any pending litigation, executive session meeting minutes, how much we pay contractors or employees is off limits. But if you have an owner that's making a records request, just recognize you have an obligation to respond and you need to respond within 10 business days. Okay, let's switch gears and talk a little bit now about a few just technical things that I want you to be aware of in Arizona. The first thing is that you have to file an annual report every year with the Arizona Corporation Commission if you're in a nonprofit corporation. If your association is a nonprofit corporation, every year you have to file an annual report. We're going to give you the link to the Arizona Corporation Commission's website. And it's a good idea for homework to click on this link and check to see if your association is in good standing. Why is this important? Because if you don't file your annual report every year, over time, after three years, the Corporation Commission will render you no longer a nonprofit corporation. And that's a problem because every owner in the association is personally liable then for the debts um, or the obligations of the former you know, nonprofit corporation, the association. So we want to keep that Corporation Commission status updated. It's a very simple online form that you file every year. You can get an email reminder sent to you so that you don't forget to do it by the Corporation Commission. They don't send you a bill. You have to just have it on your radar and remember to do it every year. But I would strongly suggest signing up for the email reminder. And then you know, you'll get a reminder 60 days before it's due and you'll just handle it. Okay, the next technical thing that I want to make you aware of is that you do have to file as a nonprofit corporation federal and state taxes every year on March 15th. You can get an extension on that till September 15th if you file the extension paperwork, but it's a very simple form. A lot of associations have their CPA just handle it for them, or some associations do it themselves, but you have to file taxes, state and federal taxes every year. Um, again, they're due March 15th. So what if you're sitting here and you've never filed taxes and you should have been as an association? What I would recommend is going forward, start filing for the next year. And if the IRS or the state of Arizona you know, requests you to go backwards, then you may have to go backwards, although I've never seen that happen. Just start doing it right going forward as a board. Okay, so we got through our topics in 63 minutes. Sorry, I'm three minutes over, but we really kind of covered a lot of ground on all the different laws that you need to be aware of in Arizona that pertain to condominiums and like communities. And now we're going to switch gears and move over to our question and answer time period um, for the seminar today. As of right now, we have about 29 questions, which is a good number of questions. So we're just going to start and go very quickly through each question. The first question is, what kind of difficulty or ease would it be for a housing cooperative to become an HOA? What laws would apply and need to be understood? Okay, so this is kind of a complex question. I'm going to simplify it. So it would be very difficult. You would need to have every owner in the association agree to be part of a planned community or a condominium, depending on how you set it up. And every, you know, we would have to have in a cooperative, the nonprofit cooperative owns all the land and the people that 
live there have like a lease with the cooperative. So it's just a totally different concept. It would be difficult and it would be expensive to do. The way that you would you know, determine which laws apply to you would be that you'd have to amend the CCNRs for the association. You may want to reach out to our firm on this because there may be a way to you know, handle this. If you want your association to be following laws similar to what Condominium Act has, you might just be able to amend the lease to include a lot of these provisions so that the both sides, the cooperative and the owners are contractually obligated to live up to the terms of the lease. Okay, question two, do you believe that the existing open meeting laws, specifically section one, and the use of the word consideration and the public policy statement allow any board to take any action or vote to a legitimate closed session? If so, why? I do believe that associations can take action, legal action in a executive session if they're talking about executive session topics. I think that's the the caveat that I would make. So consideration, I, I understand where you're going on that. You think that that means that can't vote, but it doesn't say discussion. It says consideration. And I think consideration indicates that they can vote on the issue. Um, now, why I say that you you can't vote hire or fire a vendor in executive session is because it doesn't give us that exception, you know, in there. It just says that we can talk about the job performance. Or it doesn't say that we can fire or hire one of the exceptions. So short answer is I do believe that the board can take action in a closed session, like pursuing telling the attorney to file a foreclosure or make a decision to settle a lawsuit based upon the attorney's advice. I do feel that that can be done during executive session. Okay, question number three, can the association limit all flagpoles to a height of 20 feet or must the association allow any flagpole that does not exceed the height of the relevant home's roof peak? If it's the roof peak that peaks in, our homes have up to four to five peaks. Okay, so I think we just have to go to whatever the highest part of the rooftop is on the home, and that's the highest that the flagpole can be. Because under Arizona Revised 33-1808B, we may limit the member, and we may limit the height of the flagpole to not more than the height of the rooftop of the member's home. So whatever the highest point is, that would be where you can limit it. I wouldn't do it as a feet thing, 20 feet, because you may have the highest point. Um, you know, the height of the rooftop, highest point, maybe more than that. Okay, next question. Who regulates HOAs? Hmm, good question. Nobody. Um, in Arizona, there is no regulatory agency or ombudsman that regulates HOAs or management companies. The Really, the only regulation that's out there is if somebody is unhappy or aggrieved by what's going on in their board or their association, they can file a lawsuit. They can go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate and file a complaint and have a hearing in front of an administrative law judge. They can remove their board from office. We talked about the removal petition here today. That person can run for the board themselves. It's unhappy or that person can move. Um, But there is no state agency or ombudsman currently that regulates HOAs or that regulates management companies that manage HOAs and condominiums. Okay, next question. If sometimes it sometimes happens that a member comments and evolve into extensive and occasionally combative monologues, what is a reasonable time limit on individual member comments? 
And to what extent, if any, should a summary of such comments be included in board meeting minutes? So great question. How long should we give owners to talk or members to talk during board meetings at the appropriate time? Which remember, we, we said that members are allowed to talk before the board takes formal action on something. I think one minute or two minutes is plenty of time. And if you're having a problem with owners, you know, going on and on and on and getting everybody starting to fight, put a shorter time limit on how long the owners can contribute during the meeting. That should be done at the beginning of the meeting and just announce the rules. And this is how, you know, owner feedback or owner comments is going to be handled. I think a reasonable time limit, I like a minute just because I think you can get out what you need to say in a minute, maybe two minutes if you feel that's a little too aggressive. I would say that the meeting minutes, in my opinion, should only reflect what was decided by the board, and it shouldn't be an ongoing narrative of what everybody said at the meeting. So um, our cheat sheet on board meetings has a great, um, it's called How to Take Perfectly Proper Meeting Minutes. You could take a look at that. That's on our website at multihealawfirm.com, and it says exactly what should be contained in the minutes. But again, it should just, minutes should be one page and they should reflect the decisions of the board. So motions, seconds, discussion, just say that the, the board discuss the issue. You don't have to say what everybody said. And then here's the final vote. Okay, next question. Can our HOA restrict through our rules and regs dogs such as height, weight, and breed? We have a great blog on breed restrictions that we're going to be sharing with you here right now. I guess it's kind of a hard question for me to answer without seeing your CCNRs and seeing how broad your rulemaking authority is in your CCNRs or bylaws. But generally speaking, I would say no, because this is a use restriction and this would need to be in the CCNRs. Based upon the limited information I have, this is something that I would push to the CCNRs if you want to enforce it and win if it's challenged by a dog. Question seven, do you recommend recording board meetings and posting them to the HOA website? I've seen concerns about this from HOA association websites. I'm neutral on recording board meetings. So I would say probably over half of our clients are now um, recording their Zoom meetings and they are placing those recordings in a password protected area of their website. I really don't see any problem with that. Of course, the meeting minutes are still the official record of what you know is decided at an open board meeting. But I, you know, some people want to see the actual meeting and I don't have a problem with that. Putting it on a non-password protected website, that might be something that I would advise against because anyone from the general public can see it and I, you know, would advise against that. Next question, number eight, under House Bill 2298, if our HOA holds the mandatory vote this year, do we have to wait until 2025 to implement the result of the vote, or can we implement it as soon as the vote is over? Okay, really great question. I'm going to go back up and look at the exact language of that statute to analyze that a little bit further. Okay, so first, you have to be a planned community for this law to apply to you. And remember that this law hasn't actually gone into effect yet. So please don't take any action until the law has actually gone into effect, which will be 91 days after the legislature closes. So if you're a planned community and it's after the law you know, has gone into effect and your streets are dedicated to the public, so you're wondering, let's see, not later, shall call a meeting of membership. 
If you vote to retain the authority to regulate those public roadways and you record in the office of the county reporter that, you know, you're going to continue to regulate the public roadways, I think as soon as you do that, that's fine. If the vote fails, let's see, it says if the vote prescribed by this other section fails or if the planned community does not hold the vote of the membership by, you know, the date here, June 30th, 2025, to vote to you know, not regulate the roadways, the parking on the roadways that are dedicated to the street, the plan community no longer has authority to regulate. So my feeling is once you vote on it, if it fails, you can stop regulating the parking on the roadways from that date, the next date forward. If your board doesn't do anything, doesn't take a vote, then you'd have to wait until after till July 1st, 2025 to stop regulating the roadways. I hope that answers your question. Okay, let's go back to the next question, which is going to be, I think, question number nine. Our HOA maintains, per the CCNR's bare walls insurance coverage. Will we now need to provide 80% of the replacement cost coverage? So let's go back up there and look at that statute, the new statute. Now, again, remember that until the legislature closes, Add 91 days until this law goes into effect. So if your policy is coming up for renewal right now and the new legislation hasn't gone into effect prior to the renewal date, this law doesn't apply to the next policy that, you know, you sign for a year or whatever, however long you sign it. And then when you have new policy, then it would apply. So let's see. The total amount of insurance after application of any deductible shall not be less than 80% of the actual cash value of the insured property. And so I guess this is a question that you need to push back to your insurance agent. So is bare walls coverage 80% of the insurable value of your association? It probably is, but I would still push this back to the insurance agent and find out if we have bare walls coverage, are we still in compliance with the 80% requirement that we have here? Now, remember, if it's not bare walls, it's going to be like all inclusive. And that just includes, you know, any improvements that the owner may have made, et cetera. If it's bare walls, it doesn't include the paint and the wallpaper or whatever. So I don't think that the 20%, I think that it's not going to change the way that you're doing it, but double check with your insurance agent. Okay, next question, number 10. To amend the bylaws, can this be approved by the board only at a regular open meeting? So I don't know what your bylaws say about amending the documents. Most bylaws require a vote of the membership, and that is a special meeting of the membership to vote to amend bylaws. Occasionally, we do see that the board has the right to amend the bylaws without a vote of the membership. If that's done, it has to be done in an open board meeting. The notice of the meeting must indicate that there's going to be a bylaw amendment, and I would recommend best practices would be tell the people in the notice of the meeting this is what's going to be changed so that they want to attend and listen, they can. But again, you got to check your bylaws to see what the procedure is to amend the bylaws for your community. Okay, question number 11. Some on our board take a very strict interpretation of rules preventing closed board meetings and believe that using email to discuss issues but not vote is a prohibited thing. I feel that discussion of issues before our public meeting is essential. What are your thoughts on the use of email by the board? Okay, I mean, I guess here's the bottom line. If it's less than quorum, 
that's discussing issues outside of a board meeting by email, that's fine. Or even meeting, less than a quorum can meet to discuss issues outside of a board meeting, that's fine. But a quorum of the board making decisions by email in non-emergency circumstances is a violation of the open meeting law. Now, I would be lying if I didn't tell you that almost every board is probably violating the open meeting law with these emails right now because they're hitting, they're sending the email to all board members. They're replying all, they're just discussing things outside of a board meeting. Just be really careful if you're doing that because there's no paper trail of the decisions and the discussions. And if you're already discussing it, coming into a board meeting, it's fishy. And owners will start to ask questions. Well, how could you, this really difficult topic, how can we just come into the board meeting and there's no discussion and you just know how you're going to vote? It's fishy. And really the intent of the law is to have discussion by a form of the board in an open board meeting, discussion and vote. Obviously, earlier in the presentation, we talked about the exceptions for the emergency meetings, and that is okay to use email in emergency circumstances. If you do make a decision by email and it's as a board and it's not an emergency, what I recommend that you do is immediately fix it at the next board meeting and reaffirm the decision in the meeting minute so that there's a paper trail and record that the board made this decision in an open board meeting. But really do your best to try to avoid violating the open meeting law in this way. And we have a great cheat sheet for you on technology and community associations and a blog on this topic too, I think, or I think it's just a cheat sheet actually, which we encourage you to take a look at it if you want more information on this. Okay, next question. Number 12, one of our board members, one of our board of directors called the board meeting and put in the notice that the only people that can speak at the meeting are the ones he gives permission to speak. He can't do that, right? (laughs) I love these questions because it always makes me laugh. Okay, obviously, you've got some problems at your association, right? And I'm sorry to hear that. But the board member cannot say only you, if you're an owner and not another owner can talk at a board meeting. All owners have a right to attend, listen, and participate, meaning contribute during a board meeting at appropriate times. You know, no, that's not allowable to say that only people that he gives permission to speak can talk. Now, I can, I want to defend this person. I don't even know who this person is, no idea. But if people are trying to interrupt the meeting when the board is not taking a formal vote on something, absolutely, the board member can say, you know, no comments from homeowners during this time. But that person should be fair. If they're letting one person talk, they really, you know, need to open it up to everybody. Okay, next question. Is an annual financial report required at an annual meeting? Technically, no, If unless your bylaws would require you to give a financial report. Um, but best practices would be in every annual meeting that I go to and every annual meeting that I've ever gone to over the past 28 years, we see the financial report given to members. Because remember, this is the time, this is the membership meeting, the annual meeting of the members. And it's our time as a board to give updates about what's going on in the community, about challenges, about successes, about goals, about where we are financially. Um, And so it's a really important and integral part of the discussion at the annual meeting so that we give a good 360 view of what's going on in the community to the owners. If somebody is not giving a financial report at the annual meeting, 
that would raise significant concerns to me. Like, what are they hiding? Why are we not talking about this? This is an important issue for our community. Okay, next question, number 14. The board adopted new landscape design guidelines and recorded these by unanimous consent. It was stated in the meeting that these were to come combat the lots with zero plantings. They mailed out an unreasonable amount of violation notices. I believe the board gave the management company incorrect advice and will lead to a lawsuit. How can a lawsuit be avoided? Okay, the best way to avoid a lawsuit on this is to have the board discuss the landscape design guidelines at an upcoming board meeting and reaffirm the vote. That's the safest and best way to handle it. And I really, I, I kind of doubt that there's going to be a lawsuit on this, but that's the safest way to do it. So if they're trying to enforce the lots with the zero plantings, those violations, I would stop enforcing them until you get those design guidelines approved at an open board meeting. Okay, next question. Number, And then I would start over the process. I would probably waive any fines that you have prior to that for sending out those violations. And I would start over fresh once the landscape design guidelines have been formally approved by the board at an open board meeting. Okay, next question. Number 15, we have a renter that uses the tennis courts for tennis lessons. He has mentioned he charges $70 an hour. We see parents pick up and drop off athletes. The management company says there's nothing they can do because they cannot prove he is giving lessons. We are concerned with the liability issue if someone gets hurt. For other amenities and events, we charge. Do we have any recourse to prevent tennis lessons? And so, yes, I think you definitely, I'm a tennis player and we have tennis courts at my association and we have a whole procedure if someone wants to give lessons at the tennis courts at my association. So number one, I would... Call the renter, talk to the renter, have somebody reach out to the renter to find out, um, you know, or go down to the tennis courts and talk to the renter and find out if they, in fact, are using the tennis courts for lessons. If the renter denies it, then you may need to escalate this to the owner um, because there's some liability for the owner too here. If if the tenant is potentially going to be sued, so could the owner if somebody gets hurt at the tennis courts in one of these lessons. The bottom line is, is you could pass a rule saying that the board, you'll have to look at your rulemaking authority, but maybe no tennis lessons can be passed, can be given. No monetary exchange. Maybe you limit the number of guests a person can have in a day. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to combat this. Maybe you allow the renter to give lessons there, but you require that they give the association a percentage of the amounts that they're collecting. And you require that the tennis instructor provide um, insurance. Most tennis instructors are licensed through the United States Professional Tennis Association. There's an insurance policy that they can get with that. And that would maybe counter some of the worries about liability. But again, this isn't something that you can't do anything about. No, there's lots of things you can do on this. Um, And if you reach out to me, I can help you manage this issue. Okay, question 16. It looks like we've got 36 questions this morning, so we're moving right along. Do non-scheduled or irregular committee meetings, such as architectural landscape, need to be noticed to the owners in support of the open meeting requirements? So no, if it's not a regularly scheduled committee meeting, under the law, you don't have to. You can if you want to, but you are not legally required to do that. Question 17, can two people take one board position that has become open due to a board member resigning? The two people would only 
have one vote on the board. So it's only, you can't have two people sharing a board position. It's one person can, you know, be on the board. I have seen situations where like a certain board member leaves in the summer and they want another person to come in and and take over their board responsibilities. That can be done by the one board member resigning and then the remaining board members appointing the other board member to that spot. And then if flip it back the other way, if that other board member wants to come back on the board, then the, the new the newly appointed board member resigns and then the board appoints the other board member. So it can be done, but you can't share board positions. Okay, number 18, can a committee vote on a decision by email outside of a called open committee meeting? This is really kind of a sticky wicket. Um, we have a cheat sheet on committee basics, which I would encourage you to take a look at, and we're going to be sharing that with you. I don't know if this committee is a regularly scheduled committee where they have regularly scheduled meetings. If it is, it's subject to the open meeting law and it needs to be done. All the voting needs to be done in an open board meeting. If it's not a regularly scheduled committee meeting, then it's arguable that you know maybe this, these decisions can be made by email. Um, a word of caution that I'm going to give you. If you are an architectural committee and you're making decisions by email and you're not meeting regularly, recognize that if you're dealing with a controversial topic, meaning like an approval to make a third story on a house or I don't know, paint the house Phoenix Suns purple and orange, something like that, and it's going to cause people to get upset and possibly file a lawsuit you should choose to make that meeting an open meeting because we want to have every possible he crossed and I dotted. And if you're in that situation, reach out to your legal counsel, reach out to our law firm to help you um, because we want you to make your decision completely by the book. And we want you to invite the interested parties and have a good discussion regarding the application and then have meeting minutes that reflect what happened and then a good written you know, letter with the decision of the architectural committee, et cetera. So if it's going to be challenged and it's not a regularly scheduled committee, I still would make the effort to do it the right way because we want to win in court if something's challenged. Okay, question number 19. All our governing documents state the board of directors for our association. Our recently elected board used a new title. Our recently elected board of directors instead uses a title to include executive board of directors on all open meeting documents and on emails. I'm aware there's a separate monthly executive meeting for members on sensitive matters. And there are statutes that cover this meeting requirement held by the HOA board of directors. Isn't it misleading to members to retitle the HOA board? I think it is. You want to check to see if the bylaws envision an executive board or if the CCNRs envision or mention that. If it doesn't, it is irregular that you would be creating an executive board. And in my experience, how executive boards are typically used is that, let's say you have a seven-person board, they maybe have like an executive board of three people or four people, and they meet separately away from the board. But it's it's unusual, and you got to be really careful to open meeting law because if the executive board is a quorum, it's a board meeting. I do think it's misleading to retitle, you know, the name of the HOA board based upon the information you're providing to me. Okay, question 20. Three of five board members accompany an asphalt contractor on an inspection of roads. 
No decisions are made and the information will be discussed at the next open board meeting in preparation for a motion and vote on what the board will decide. Does gathering the info constitute a board meeting that has to be noticed? I guess this is all going to fall on, so three of the five is going to be a quorum, right? It has to be a quorum of the board discussing association business. So if those three are going out with the asphalt contractor and they're not saying anything, which is unlikely, then it's, you know, you're fine. It's not a violation of the open meeting law. But the reality is, is if you're meeting with a contractor, the contractor's talking, you're asking questions, and you've got a quorum there, it is an open board meeting and it should be noticed. Okay, next question, number 21. Should discussion of a fine for a violation be held in executive session? Uh, yes, it can um, under enforcement of association documents. Should it be? It can be. You have a choice. You can either talk about it in the open session or you can move it to the executive session. I probably, you know, my advice would be talk about it in the executive session. Okay, question 22. When choosing between multiple vendors and then voting on one for a project, is that discussed in an open or executive session? Bid estimates. So when you're thinking about hiring a vendor and then voting on one, should it be in the open session? I think that that should be in the open session because if you look at the language of the open meeting law, it talks about, you can go into executive session to talk about the job performance of compensation of health records of or complaints against employees of the association or an individual employee of a contractor of the association. They haven't been hired yet. So that's something that would need to be done in the open session based upon the facts that you've given me here. Okay. So when you're interviewing and when you're deciding on which vendor to use, do that in the open session. Okay. Question number 23. It is my understanding that email votes need to be unanimous. Can you please confirm? Okay. We spent a lot of time on this today. We probably need to talk about this in future memos. This is a very good topic because it seems to be a lot of people have questions on it. So you really shouldn't be taking any email votes because it is contrary or against the open meeting law as a board. Okay. The only exception would be if you have an emergency that needs to be decided, then an email vote can be taken by the board. It could be, it doesn't have to be unanimous. If it's a true emergency, it can be taken by Zoom in person without the 48 hours notice. Okay, next question. Uh, but then again, with the emergency meetings, don't forget the next regular board meeting of the association, you have to read into the record what was decided. Okay, number 24, our architectural review is done by board members. No specific meetings are set. We get one to two requests per month max. We require written approval, email by all the board and management file records. At a regular board meeting, we just basically present the results any problems with conducting business by unanimous email vote? Okay, again, it, it's the same topic. If you have, even though your architectural committee is, it doesn't sound like get regular ones, like you have a regular meeting, you're making the decisions by email, your board is the architectural committee. And anytime a board, a majority of the board is discussing association business, it needs to be an open board meeting. So what I would recommend that you do is that at your regular board meeting that you have a time where you talk about architectural requests because that's, you know, your board handles these requests and just do it as part of your regular board meeting and include it in the minutes and stop doing the email votes 
if you do do an email vote, you should discuss it again and approve it at the regular board meeting. But I really advise against doing that. I think the smartest thing to do is just make it part of your regular board meeting. Okay, question 25. Do architectural request approvals require open meeting approvals or are written email approvals okay? Okay, so we got three in a row questions on this. We kind of have already talked about this topic in depth. If it's a regularly scheduled architectural committee that meets, you know, it doesn't sound like that is here. We recommend that you review architectural requests in an open board meeting. If you don't meet regularly, I guess you can try to disapprove them by email. But remember, if somebody challenges it, all of your practices are going to come under scrutiny. And practices would be, does your architectural committee meet regularly? Why didn't you have a meeting? And are there meeting minutes, et cetera? And so I guess a lot of associations are doing architectural reviews by email. But when someone challenges it, you you really need to doubt all your I's and cross all your T's and have a meeting, notice a meeting to be safe, have meeting minutes, have discussion and voting in the meeting minutes. Okay, question number 26 regarding solar panels. Does the community have to ensure the residents' solar panels are operating effectively by removing or trimming trees in the common areas? Hmm, that's a really good question. I haven't had that one before. So I guess my thought would be you should be properly trimming your trees as an association, right? And if you have trees that are like hanging on someone's roof, they really should be trimmed back. I don't know, maybe you have some very old trees which provide a shadow or something and the, and the owner wants you to trim it back so there's no shadow. That may not be a reasonable request. So I'd have to know more about you know what's going on here and why the trees are potentially you know not allowing them to the solar panels to operate efficiently to give you a more formal opinion on that. There could be you know a requirement to do that, but it's all based on a reasonable standard. Is it reasonable that we have to trim it back so only twenty percent of the tree you know is has leaves on it? Probably not. Okay, question twenty seven. During an open board meeting, we voted and passed the removal of two trees and their stumps. When the contractor came to do the job, our board president changed the work order. He had them leave one stump and trim two trees instead without prior board input or knowledge. This isn't the first time when the board has voted on an issue and he has made changes. How can we curtail this behavior? Okay, a couple of thoughts that I have on this. Sometimes... When you get to the event here, when the, the contractor came, there's a reason why we're not going to do something. And so I guess the first thing I would say is reach out to the board member, the board president, and say, you know, why exactly did this get changed and hear the feedback? And then you're going to have to listen and determine, okay, is that reasonable? Did this exceed the scope of authority that we gave the board president? And if so, what can we do for behavior? I mean, you can always strip the president of his or her title. Typically under the bylaws, you can take away their presidency. They'll still be a director at large, but that might be something that you do. These are difficult situations because you all need to work together. I would listen to what the president has to say because there might be some facts that we didn't know about when we voted on that you know he was informed of. I just know as a board member myself and my community, if I were in that situation and I was a board member on the ground handling a problem, I would make an effort to reach out to the board while it was going on and say, hey, what do you want me to do? Here's some new information. Or if the decision had to be made like record fast time, 
after I made the decision, I would email the board just an update and say, hey, this happened. Don't respond back to me, but I'm just letting you know that this happened today and this is why I did what I did. Let's discuss it at the board meeting next week or next month or whatever. Okay, next question, number 28. Are the transfer or disclosure fees HOA funds or are they management company fees? So great question. All of this is negotiated in the contract with the management company. So in my experience, the transfer fees usually go to the association. In my experience, the disclosure fees, the cost for doing the disclosure paperwork as part of the management contract is usually negotiated with the association when they hire the management company. Usually the disclosure fees, not higher than 400, typically go to the management company as per the management contract. But again, all of these things are negotiated as part of the contract with the management company. Okay, question number 29. A member has requested a copy of the materials that the board members get for each regularly scheduled meeting. Can the board refuse to share these materials? So here's how it's so typically a board gets a packet of information prior to the board meeting. And then you come to the meeting and we discuss the packet. I'm fine with sharing portions of the packet which are, you know, not which are able to be disclosed to a member after the meeting. So, for example, if the member wants to see the packet after the board meeting, so the meeting minutes were probably going to be approved at that board meeting. So that's usually the first thing in the packet. They can have those meeting minutes. They can have the financials after the meeting, after they've been approved. They can have anything in there that isn't privileged, attorney-client privileged, anything that's not pertaining to violations or fines, delinquencies. Um, you'll just have to go through the packet and pull out the things that they're not entitled to have under but they, they can make that request. And then after the meeting, they can have that packet 10 business days after the meeting. What they can't have is the same packet that the board gets at the meeting to follow along with that packet. That's just the way it works because a lot of those things haven't been approved yet. And it's not proper for that to go to a homeowner before the board's had an opportunity to vote on it first. Question number 30, what documents will dictate a change in room rentals for clubs and private parties? Residents have been paying a nominal fee for rentals. Let's see. Oops, I lost my spot here. Sorry about that. And, okay, let's see. What documents will dictate a change in room rentals for clubs and private parties? Residents have been paying a nominal fee for rentals and charges for setup equipment, etc. And now they want to change that to a per meeting space charge. So I'm assuming you're saying what documents would give the board the authority to do this? Hmm. Maybe the rules, maybe the CCNRs. I think I'd have to see the specific language in your documents. It would be best probably to have something in your CCNRs. Although, honestly, I haven't seen very many sets of CCNRs that envision charges for room rentals, the clubhouse, or whatever. And I don't know how large your association, some of these associations have like bowl rooms and, you know, many meeting rooms, et cetera. And they may have a separate document for their community, which outlines, you know, they have to join the club or whatever. So it's hard for me to, to make a comment on this. If you're just a small association and you're trying to get a, a fee for somebody to rent the clubhouse out, that may be able to be set up in the rules. I have to see how broad the rulemaking authority is. Be careful on this, though, because if you're renting it out to the general public, you could be making your place a public accommodation place, and then you'd have to 
bring your bathrooms and everything up to ADA requirements. So you probably want to talk to your attorney about this as you're navigating this room rental charges issue. Okay, question number 31. If a homeowner has damaged a community wall due to overwatering on the homeowner's property, what would be the best way for the HOA to address this? I would recommend that the association bring out a contractor to take a look at it and write up a report as to why the wall is damaged and provide evidence and pictures. And then I would send that evidence from the contractor to the owner with a request to, you know, for them to contribute to fix the wall. Um, Now, of course, I'm assuming that I don't know what kind of wall this is. I'm assuming that the wall is on one side, the owner who lives on that side, that they're responsible for that side of the wall and that the other side of the wall is facing common areas and that the watering that the owner is doing on their side is now causing damage on our side. Typically in the CCNRs, when you have a party wall like this, it's outlined in the documents how it's handled. And typically the person that causes the damage is responsible to fix the damage. Um, So just having good documentation from a reputable contractor explaining the damage and how it's being caused, I think is important. And then sending that to the owner with a request to either pay for the cost to fix it or for them to have it fixed. Usually you pay the cost and have the association with either the contractor to fix it. Okay, question number 32. If an owner, if a homeowner has damaged, oh, let's see, can any one board member ask for an executive session to discuss performance of a contractor? Do we need the majority of the board to agree to have an executive session? Good question. So can any board member put an agenda item or ask for a special executive session to discuss a contractor's performance? Or do we need a majority of the board? I mean, it just really depends, you know, how this is a tough question to answer because I've seen a lot of different things over 28 years. Sometimes you have like a board member who's fixated on something and it's not a reality. You know what I mean? Like they just dislike a vendor and they want to do anything they can to get rid of the vendor. I mean, of course, I would hear them out. We have an obligation to listen to the board member and their opinion on things, but having a special executive session to discuss it may not be something that the board wants to do. Um, You may want to look at the bylaws to see if one board member can force an executive session or a regular board meeting. I doubt they can. Usually it's 25% of the board or the president can call a meeting. Here in this situation, I'm guessing what's happening is that a majority of the board doesn't want to have a meeting on this. And so they're using that to say no executive session. So if I were the other board member that wants this, I'd look at the bylaws and see how you can call a special meeting of the board. And if you don't have the votes and you don't have it, just bring it up at a regular board meeting. Okay, question 33. You mentioned that for sale and political sign laws apply to owner's property. Does that also apply to flag displays? So I think I did mention earlier in the session that Arizona law is allowing owners who live in a planned community and a condo to have for sale, for lease, political signs on their property. I'm not sure where you're going on this, but I think maybe you might be saying like our flag displays that are political, can they also have that on their property? So this is kind of a dicey question because the Arizona legislature hasn't approved a political flag as one of their approved flags. So what we did during the 2020 presidential election was 
we told clients that if somebody wanted to fly a flag, that we would just recommend to them that it's like not contain any, you know, swear words or have anything that was offensive to anybody on it and um, that they could fly the political flag for the time period that they would be able to have the political sign on their property under the law. So just a, a set period of time before and after the election that they can have it on there. But again, the law is a little bit unclear on this. It's political flags are not listed as a flag that's allowable under the statute. I think my feeling on it back in 2020 when this came up was I don't really want one of my clients to be the case that goes all the way up to the Supreme Court of Arizona on this, um, because that's going to cost you $300,000, $400,000 in legal fees to defend. And I don't think you win. I think that this will be, I think the ultimate decision by the court would be that a flag, a political flag can be flown under the political sign because they don't define sign specifically. They just talk about the, the size of the sign, the maximum size of the sign based upon which municipality you live in. So trying to save you a little bit here from spending a lot of money, and I think I would just allow it. Okay, question 34. Townhome community. CCNR state no renters. A homeowner has become disabled and cannot climb stairs in their home anymore. Homeowner wants to rent the home due to disability and move to a single story elsewhere. CCNR state there are exceptions such as financial, but no mention of rental exceptions. If we deny their request, would that be against the fair housing law and we could be sued? Oh, this is a good question. I love teaching these classes because I, you know, you just hear different issues that you hadn't really thought about. Okay, so let's break this down. So the homeowner's disabled, so likely the Fair Housing Act does apply to this situation they are going to be asking for a reasonable accommodation to the rule regarding, you know, no renters because they need to move to somewhere else. I mean, it, it probably does qualify under the Fair Housing Act and it, it probably, there are exceptions. You're already saying there are exceptions to this, such as financial. This clearly could be one of the all under financial, even though it also is a fair housing issue. So I, I would need to know more, but my initial inclination is you probably do need to make the reasonable accommodation and allow this. Okay, question number 35. In the case of a board recall situation where it does get to the point that a petition has been submitted, you mentioned that it will cost an association at least $5,000. Can you discuss the potential list of charges that could add up? You bet. So the first thing that happens when a recall petition comes in is that we have to verify the names that are listed on the petition. And we do that by checking with, and usually they give it to the attorney for the association right away. And we check each name and we go to the Maricopa County Assessor's Office or the Recorder's Office to see if the person who signed the petition is a record owner. Now, I don't know how large your association is, but sometimes we're doing a thousand names. Sometimes it's only a hundred. Sometimes it's 300. It takes time and it's an hourly rate. And we do, there's a fee for doing this. And what our hourly rate is, well, then let's say that it doesn't move forward. That, well, then we have to write a letter to the people that submitted it saying why it didn't pass. Or if it does move forward, then we have to write the ballot for the meeting. We have to um, find a location for the meeting. There may be a cost for the location. Um, we have to write a letter to accompany the meeting. There's postage. 
um, charges for mailing it out and then also posted charges for the ballot to be returned. Typically, there's a lot of fighting when you get these removal meetings and there's a lot of back and forth. Sometimes the owners have an attorney. The association always has an attorney. Frequently, there's letters going back and forth fighting about things. Then you get to the actual meeting night or then you get to the lead up to the meeting. Typically, we the day of the meeting, we count all the ballots in advance make sure that each ballot is submitted by a record owner by checking to make sure that their person that's listed on the ballot is actually listed on the deed. And then we go to the actual meeting, which is typically kind of short. We call the ballots, anybody else have to vote? And then we count ballots that came in that night and then announce the results. Um, And then typically we prepare a letter after the meeting explaining what happened and what this means for the association. Sometimes if the recall is is successful, then we have to send out a letter to the candidates saying or letter asking for candidates to run for the open positions. And then we have to have a meeting of the membership sometimes. Other times we, the board appoints, you know, new board members, if less than a quorum was removed. There's just a lot of legal issues that come up with a removal meeting. And typically there is a lot of animosity and fighting between the homeowners and the board members that are being removed. And those situations typically result in the attorney being consulted and lots of back and forth on it. So that's kind of just a little breakdown in terms of at least 5,000. It is at least 5,000 for sure. Anytime you get a recall meeting notice. Number 35, in the case of a, let's see, number 36 Is there any requirement for the board to provide reasonable accommodations to provide meetings in a climate-controlled area during the summer? So this raises a fair housing issue. You know, I don't know if you have a resident that is handicapped that is asking for this. I think there are lots of workarounds on this that wouldn't require you to have it, you know, in an air-conditioned spot. I mean, of course, you should consider it just as a courtesy but this person may be able to appear telephonically or by Zoom would be a possible way that we can accommodate them so that if the heat is a factor, I think there's many other ways versus forcing the association to go into a climate-controlled area. But you mean you want to listen to your residents. If everybody wants it to go inside somewhere, I think as a board, you're elected by your constituents. And so you should you know, carefully consider any requests like this. If there are a large, large number of people that want this, you may want to consider doing it, or you may just want to switch to Zoom in the hotter months and have your meetings on Zoom. Okay, next question, number 37. Um, per our documents, our board should have five members, but we have been at four since the annual meeting in March. There seems to be no urgency to fill the vacancy through posting the need on our webpage, etc. What is the correct way to fill up the board? Are there deadlines we need to apply to abide by? Okay, so it appears your board had five members, but then for whatever reason, after the annual meeting in March, it went down to four. I mean, it really is up to your board how they handle this. As legal counsel for an association, I would recommend to a board that you know, you consider trying to fill that fifth vacancy because if I had to guess, your documents say that the board shall consist of five people. But there are many times where we can't get people to volunteer to serve on the board. And it's just not a reality that we can find somebody to actually be that fifth board member. If your board is doing it because they know that the only people who want to serve on the board are people they don't like, which sometimes, unfortunately, we see, 
that's really not a good reason. And what I would recommend is that you put some pressure on the board by writing a letter saying, there's a vacancy on the board. I would like to be considered to fill that vacancy if, if that's what's prompting this question. Or we're asking that you send out a letter to the membership to fill the vacancy, ask people for volunteers to fill a vacancy in and see what they do. Okay, we got through 37 questions and we still have three minutes left. It's um, 12.57, so we're making great time today. In conclusion, I want to thank everybody for being here today. Um, we got through a lot of questions and a lot of subject material um, in just under two hours. Today, we had 144 live viewers on Zoom. I think that might be one of our highest ones other than during the pandemic when we everybody was at home and everybody was logging on. And we had many others joining us on Facebook Live today. So thank you so much for being here today to make your community better and to learn more about Arizona law regarding HOAs and condos. One little thing that I want to remind you about is that we are not having a first Friday in July due to the 4th of July holiday week. So our next virtual first Friday event is going to be Friday, August 4th at 9 a.m. So no first Friday, first Friday in July. Don't forget that next month in July, we're going to be teaching class number seven of our virtual HOA Academy on July 18th at 11 a.m. And the topic for this class is going to be understanding the hierarchy of association documents. And we're going to talk about a five-step plan for how to amend your CCNRs. Also, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about records requests and how to best handle them when difficulties arise with owners wanting to see records. And so we hope that you'll join us on Tuesday, July 18th to talk about these topics. Um, lastly, I'm just going to make a little ask here at the end of my presentation here today. I'm asking if you're inclined to do so to please consider leaving our firm a Google review for teaching these classes. We're going to share a link in the chat on how to leave a review. So you'll be seeing that on your screen here if you're joining us on Zoom or Facebook Live. Um, we put a lot of time and effort into preparing these classes, and we are interested in hearing feedback from you so that we can share those with the cities that we partner with about whether you think these classes are valuable, about whether you think we're efficiently using the time, about whether we're answering all of your questions, any topics that you'd like to hear us talk about in the future. Please consider leaving us a Google review. It's really important that we get your feedback so that we continue these classes going forward. So we're going to be sharing that Google review link with you shortly. And I ask you, please, if you're inclined to do so, to go ahead and do that today. Thank you again to all the neighborhood services departments that we partner with to teach these classes. We appreciate you caring about your residents and your owners and um, making sure that your communities are healthy and following the laws. Thank you again to the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe. We've enjoyed working with you to teach these classes and to bring this educational content to um, the residents of Arizona to help them better run their associations. And we appreciate the opportunity to work with you. So thank you again, everybody. Have a wonderful 4th of July, my most favorite holiday of the year. Hope you have a great time with your family and friends. And I look forward to seeing you again on July 18th. Take care, everybody. Don't forget, our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. The intent of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation.